Oh, hey, good morning, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the Rebel News Daily Roundup. I'm your guest host, Sheila Gunry, and I'm joined in studio in Toronto by my friend and colleague, uh, Tamara Ugolini. Tamara, how's it going? I think they've got everything done in the studio, do they not? Well, it's getting pretty close. There's still some lighting fixes that need to take place, and it's pretty bright in here. I'm not going to lie, but I'm also very sensitive to the light. So there's this, I think it's a comedian who wears sunglasses on air because he just can't handle the light in his eyes. And I think in about a year, that may be me. So other than the lighting and tidying up some of the cords, the studio's looking pretty fresh. I'm really excited to see the finished product. Well... I have to tell you, besides the light absolutely blinding you, probably it looks really good. Like it looks less um, like a, a police mag light shining in your face, like how it used to look. I think they're finally figuring it out. So, um, uh, but I'm glad. I'm glad that uh, things are getting back to normal in uh, the studio in mm-hmm. Toronto. Um, we should tell everybody what we're doing here today. We'll uh, also get to uh, some just some housekeeping. And then, uh, boy, we've got a lot of things on the agenda today. And I absolutely lost where I was. Okay, I found it. Okay. So this is the Rebel News Daily Roundup. It's normally hosted by David Menzies in studio. Um, but David Menzies is uh, on very special assignment, and he is just dealing with the intense media requests surrounding his reporting of the trans-identifying rugby player from Fergus, Ontario, who is very clearly a male but playing on the ladies' team. Um Despite the fact that the mainstream media in Canada seem to be completely ignoring this story, um, the independent media and media from around the world are absolutely appalled. And I, I've heard from uh, rugby playing girls from as far away as Ireland who, who can't even believe this is happening. So that's what David Menzies is doing today. So it's me and Tamara today. Yes. Um, w- Wherein we talk about the news of the day completely unscripted, and boy, there's a lot of news to talk about today. Um, if you want to support the work that we do completely willingly, and you're still watching us over on the censorship platform of YouTube, might I suggest you migrate over to a less censorious platform, a platform that really doesn't care about your politics. I don't need them to align with my politics. I just need them to leave me alone. And so far, that seems to be what's happening over at Rumble. Um, On Rumble, if you want to leave us a paid chat, which we will read during the show, it's called a Rumble Rant. On Odyssey, it's called a Hyper Chat. And it's your way to take the show in your own direction, leave us a question, comment, story idea. But it also allows you to support us here at uh, Rebel News, because as you know, we'll never take a penny from Justin Trudeau. Um, It keeps us honest, but it also means that we have to rely on our viewers at home. So every little bit counts and we appreciate everything you do for us and all your donations in advance. And um, you are in studio in Toronto today, Tamara, because there are things happening in Toronto tonight. Right? Yes. Yeah, there's very exciting happenings in Toronto at the Eglinton Grand Theater on Eglinton Ave in downtown, well, close to downtown Toronto. I would classify it as downtown. Um, But Tamara Leach will be doing a book signing event. So the doors open for general admission at 6 p.m. I think tickets are only $5. So extremely affordable. Great way to support Rebel News, the publisher of the book, and also Tamara Leach in her ongoing freedom fighting efforts, including... If you haven't already read reading her book, um, Hold the Line, which you can find all the details at the 
theconvoybook.com. So at that website, you can order a copy if you don't already have one, but you can also join us in person to purchase your own copy, have it signed by Tamara Leach herself, meet and greet, mingle a little bit. Uh, it's always exciting to get together in person. I know we've been unrestricted, quote unquote, for about a year and a half post the COVID hysteria, but I never, you know, I always love the opportunity to meet and mingle with our supporters in person and just like-minded people in general. Always great conversation, nice to shake hands and have some normalcy. We don't see a lot of those fist bumps or any, or sorry, the elbow bumps um, or anything like that. So yeah, if you're in the area or you're in the GTA, Head on over to theconvoybook.com, get your tickets. I think we'll have a few left at the door. So if you're kind of struggling there to access anything online, just come right down to the Eglinton Grand, purchase a ticket and come check us out. And then we're in Dresden, sorry, the following day, August 2nd, tomorrow, and then heading up to Aylmer on August the 3rd at uh, the Hildebrandt's Church. So again, all of that information and all of those dates and times are at theconvoybook.com. And these shows have been selling out. So I would say if you're waiting, don't wait anymore. Just purchase that $5 ticket, come out, get a book signed, purchase some for gifts too. There's a lot of people who have been getting them for others and, and getting them signed. cool merch. There's and cool, cool merch, uh, yes. Yeah. Can't forget about the merch. Um, so yeah, come check us out. Get to all the info at hold the, sorry, theconvoybook.com. Um, and you touched on uh, one of the v- upcoming venues there. It's Aylmer, August 3rd. Mm-hmm. That's the Church of God um, with Pastor Henry Hildebrand there. Go there and meet the people who stood up for all of our freedoms. Um, and the Hildebrands there, they're, they're so welcoming. When you go there, you are going to be shocked that the province of Ontario considered these people public enemy number one during the COVID pandemic. Uh, they are featured prominently in our documentary, Church Under Fire, Canada's War on Christianity, as one of the few conscientious objector churches in this country who stood up against the unconstitutional COVID restrictions on places of worship. Um, and if you would like to see our documentary, you can go to churchunderfiremovie.com for a coming showings we've got a few that are coming in bc um and then uh kian my documentary filmmaking partner kian simoni our head of documentaries uh we're just finalizing uh i'm going to describe it as another whirlwind tour (laughs) this time of of alberta and we are going like top to bottom of the province so going from lethbridge to grand prairie um over the course of i think about four or five days with like five stops um and that's towards the end of August. Um, so, oh, we added a red deer screening. There's, I, you guys are learning a lot of things with me. <laughs> so, uh, Kian is working very, very hard behind the scenes to to bring the documentary to towns all across the country. And if you are a venue that wants to bring the documentary to where you're at, it you can also contact us at that same uh, website. It's churchunderfiremovie.com. And again, those right. events have been selling out too. So don't waste Crazy. your time. 
yeah, don't waste any time. Get on over to those websites and purchase your tickets because they're going fast. And we're finding people are maybe waiting until the day before yeah. or the day of, and then all of the ticket ch- tickets have been scooped up. We do try to keep some at the door, but if you're traveling a distance, it's not a guarantee. So just head on over and get your tickets now. And in honor of David Menzies, who can't be here in studio today because of his important mission specialist title, Um, I want to say that today is National Girlfriends Day. And so this isn't girlfriends in your traditional girlfriend-boyfriend relationship, but rather uh, girlfriends as in friends that are girls. And so I have here a post that says, National's Girlfriends Day is a bonding occasion for women and girls to spend time doing fun things, I assume, together and showing appreciation for their friendship. So what a better day to come out and meet Tamara Leach. <laughs> there it is, National the Girlfriend's country's Day. country's girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, get your girlfriend appreciation on. There yeah. you go, David Menzies. I'm sure he would have something more enlightening and fun to say about it. But there you have it, National Girlfriend's Day. He would. He would probably come out as uh, his alter ego, Chesty Lemieux, oh, no. um, and <laughs> offer to be our girlfriend. Yeah, he actually uh, sure. told me, I think it was National Sleepover Day that we could be girlfriends and sleep over. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, Menzies with his jokes. You never know what's going to come out of the mouth of Menzies. But anyway, we have a jam-packed newsy day to share with you with some really fun clips of our Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau. And I guess we'll just get right off on the right foot yep. here with him. Who? This is a weird band-aid <laughs> riddled Justin Trudeau who drummed up hatred for unvaccinated Canadians or people, you know, waiting, taking the wait-and-see approach for these novel injections when they rolled out in the late winter of 2020 2020 yeah um he's now accusing pierre polyev of the exact same are we surprised let's have a listen yes there are challenges around the cost of living but you don't solve problems by scaring people by stirring up anger <laughs> what you can he's hoping that he's going to be able to get votes out of it but that's not how you build a stronger economy Confident communities, confident countries invest in themselves. His solution on anything is cut housing supports, cut dental supports, bring forward a two-tier health care. You haven't heard him talk about the investments we're making in health care because he doesn't want to have anything to say about that. Because these are real measures that are going to be helping Canadians. His answer to everything is cuts and be angry. That's not Canada. That's not how we build a stronger future. That's not how we've gotten through the challenging times we've had in the past. Canadians roll up their sleeves and get to work and build and invest in themselves and their communities. That's what we do. We partner with people. We don't pick fights with mayors. That's where the anger that he is drumming up is dangerous for Canadians who would much rather work hard and build a strong future than throw up their hands and say, oh, it's all terrible, it's all broken. Let's all stay home. No, that's not who Canadians are. So I won't be stirring up anger. I will be pointing out where his proposals are irresponsible and unserious. 
but I will stay focused on solving the challenges Canadians are facing rather than exploiting them for political gain like Pierre Polyev does. Exploiting them for political gain. Um, mm. <laughs> do we want to mm. go right into that flashback of Justin Trudeau less than, was it less than a year ago or about a year, a year and a half ago, almost to the day? Yeah, 20, 2021. And, you know, it's odd that he said that he would, people would stoke uh, division for political gain. The PCO, the Privy Council office, literally studied how far they could go with demonizing Canadians um, in the lead up to the last election, how far Justin could go to stoke division before Canadians realized that they were being played by this absolute idiot. By the way, what is on his head? What is, <laughs> what is that? Is he having some sort of allergic reaction to blackface paint or whatever costume he, he's been wearing after dark? What is going on there? Does he not have a drag queen friend who can, Tell him how to cover up whatever that thing is on his face. What What is that? Yeah, we've had some conspiracy theories floating around that this is uh, climate change, um, a result <laughs> of climate change. Something's happened to Justin Trudeau's forehead. And so we all have to stop using carbon. We need to mm -hmm. shudder into our homes, stop commuting. As uh, Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland told everybody, I think it was yesterday or perhaps it was Friday. Two days ago. Yeah, to, to move into Toronto, buy a bicycle and hop on public transit. And yeah. that's how you're going to, I guess, curb climate change. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm interested to know what is happening on his face. I think an allergic reaction to blackface may be a very credible suspicion. But let's I, just before we move ahead, he he said that he doesn't want to have. Uh, he said Pierre Polyev's solution to everything that's happening in Canada. I wrote it down as he was saying it. Uh, let's just do cuts, like cuts to services, and be angry. Um. If my options are cuts to services and be angry or out of control spending and being angry, I'm going to go with Pierre Polyev, sorry. <laughs> like, at least I'll have more money in my pocket while I'm miserable. Mm -hmm. um, but Justin Trudeau's solution is just make it rain from the money tree and then force people to be angry with their neighbors uh, through some sort of psyop on the TV every day. Well, another thing he said is Pierre Polyev just wants us all to stay home. I'm pretty sure for a solid year and a half there, the rhetoric from the Justin Trudeau liberals at Al was stay home, save lives. And so this is where we've ended up is that there's just been no fiscal responsibility in order to stay home and shutter down small businesses in what was the largest wealth transfer of my time and arguably yep. generations prior. Um, this is the result now that we have record inflation and unabated spending by this same government that told everybody, don't worry, we have your backs, stay home, save lives. And you can tell he's getting ready for the campaign trail too, because a repeated slogan I hear him saying in these little clips and in his speeches is rolling up their sleeves and getting to work. This is the new Yeah, uh, And you see Justin platform. Trudeau with his, yeah, yeah, with his like sleeves rolled up. Um, <laughs> Pretending like he's working. Pretending like he's working, and I think it's just so he keeps the Play-Doh off his cuffs um, when he's playing in the car. But yeah, like he says, uh, they want us all to stay home. 
the liberals are the ones that are making it too expensive to leave your house with the carbon tax. Like the, the, the carbon tax is designed to change your behavior. Mm -hmm. So you don't drive as much. So you don't go places. So you can't, there literally that's what it's supposed to do is to disincentivize through financial penalties using fossil fuels. Um, we use fossil fuels in our vehicles. So they're the ones that want you to stay home. Uh, they have an entire tax built around it. Anyways, let's go. Let's throw to that other yeah. clip of Justin Trudeau doing that, which he says that the other side is doing, because that's always what liberals do. If you don't want to get vaccinated, that's your choice. But don't think you can get on a plane or a train beside vaccinated people. <laughs> and now is the time for people who are still resistant to getting vaccinated to realize that that choice which has consequences on putting our kids at risk, which has consequences at having us risk uh, more lockdowns because they haven't chosen to get vaccinated yet, that there will be consequences for those people in not being able to go to a gym or a restaurant, not being able to go to a movie theater, not being able to get on a train or a plane. I want to stand up for the choice of those who are there for their neighbors. Not those who are risking us all going into further lockdowns, of slowing our economic recovery. Trying to bring people together is not always compatible with science, with respect for human rights, with the best way to move things forward. I mean, when Aaron O'Toole talks about, oh yes, we need to unite people, we need to bring people together, he's talking about defending the rights of people who are anti-vax. That's why we've been unequivocal. If you want to get on a plane or a train in the coming months, you're gonna to have to be fully vaccinated. So families uh, with their kids don't have to worry uh, that someone is gonna put them in danger in the seat next to them or across the aisle. Unfortunate that people who chose not to get vaccinated are now the ones clogging up our ICU systems and our hospital clogging beds up. that should be available for people who did their work and wow. did get vaccinated, making sure uh, that uh, businesses that choose to move forward with uh, vaccine vaccination requirements aren't subject to unnecessary or unjustified lawsuits. If you make a choice, a personal choice, to not get vaccinated, then I will have no sympathy for you when you come to me and said, oh, but I can't go out to a restaurant with my friends, or I'm not being allowed to go to the gym, or my employer uh, is telling me I have to continue to work from home. Uh, Scumbag. You don't have a right to endanger others. And those people are putting us all at risk. Just pure dehumanizing rhetoric. You don't have a right to endanger others for a shot that was never proven to stop transmission or infection. That is Canada the misinformation of Justin yeah. Trudeau. And Health Canada never checked for efficacy. They checked for safety. <laughs> um, and... You know, to listen to him talk uh, while also realizing that this 
all those talking points weren't Justin Trudeau just being a vile, disgusting human being with no regard for human dignity, who turned being sick into a moral failing of the people who ended up sick. You have to realize that that's just not him. That was public policy. They focus grouped this. They studied it. And then they carefully crafted their campaign policies and campaign messaging around dehumanizing six million of our federal our, our fellow Canadians who simply took a wait and see approach with this medicine. And as it turns out, they were right to do that. Mm -hmm. um, they were right to not just jump feet first into this. And by the way, Justin Trudeau, how many times did that guy get COVID? How many times he's like double vax, triple boosted. And by the way, he speaks about the unvaccinated, like they are filthy vermin. You know that everybody around him was also double, triple boosted. So who was giving him COVID if he ever had it? Uh, I think some of it was an excuse to avoid dealing with <laughs> the convoy. But if he did get COVID, he could only have gotten it from his morally superior triple boosted friends mm -hmm. well all the subsequent waves of covid happened when canada was essentially in vaccinated only lockdown if you were unvaccinated as justin trudeau stated in those clips you couldn't get on a plane or a train and there was no cross-border travel so when those subsequent waves were happening and those variants came out of thin air it was arguably the vaccinated travelers super spreading and some would argue super shedding their viral loads because we knew by uh, 2021, there was studies, they were preprints at the time, they've now been fully accredited and are peer reviewed that were showing vaccinated and unvaccinated people carry similar viral loads. So they're able to carry and transmit. And if unvaccinated people aren't allowed to travel, then where are all these variants coming from? So there's a lot of things and discrepancies that didn't make sense at the time that a lot of people unfortunately didn't see at the time, but we know now hindsight is 2020 and thank goodness we have those receipts and these clips that we can share with you that show that uh, Justin Trudeau and his government were the purveyors and the leaders of mis and disinformation throughout the last three years, not the people who were trying to speak truth to power, hold the government to account, and get an alternative point of view by the people who are being slandered, smeared, and silenced just for simply questioning the narrative and the consensus, because science isn't about a consensus. It is about trial and error and question and inquiry. And that was completely squashed over the last few years. So this projection, once again, of Justin Trudeau that, you know, remember he responded to my question during the French leadership debates in 2021 that we were um, a news organization or he didn't even want to call us that, but we were spreading myths and disinformation. That was a projection of what he himself and his government and appointees were doing. And now he's projecting once again onto the leader of the opposition, Pierre Polyev, to be doing the very things that Justin Trudeau has actually been doing himself. So this isn't anything yeah. new or surprising with him, but it's nice to tie it all in together with a pretty little bow and present it with clips because it's undeniable there. You can see for yourself what's happening. You know, you, during the pandemic, you sort of listen to Justin Trudeau say these things in 
multiple isolated incidents. But when you put it all together, yeah, my God, to hear an elected leader talk about a substantial portion of the Canadian population that way, mm-hmm. it's like stuff you haven't heard in 90 years, right? This absolute dehumanization of a subset of the population for a medical choice or for how they choose to live their lives. Uh, I mean, it's eugenics level stuff. It's just revolting um, that these people have no place in Canadian society. Well, what are you going to do with them, Justin? Where should they go? Or should we send them to some sort of camp, a gulag? Should we launch them into the surface of the sun? Or are they just Canadians who chose a different way? And at the end of it all, we're smarter than everybody. And arguably healthier. Yep. <laughs> some, some of yep. us anyway. <laughs> and which is really sad to see, though, because these policies and these measures have taken a direct hit. The healthcare system, rather, has taken a direct hit as a result. We're seeing an influx of sick patients that have these strange symptoms. There's this alleged long COVID phenomenon happening, which I love to know the stats on who suffers with long COVID, where they vaccinated or not, and if so, how many boosters. Um, but we have this article here from Blacklocks to share with you that, yep. that shows there will be a national shortage of healthcare workers. There already is, but it's only going to be further exacerbated as the years go on. The Department of Health briefing note recently said in the Commons Health Committee that the country will be short more than 100,000 nurses by the end of this decade, so by the end of 2030. And um, the workplace could see a 16% loss in the nursing profession within the next year. And that is compounded already on what we have seen so far. We've been covering that story for the last three years. I've featured various nurses, um, including one in particular that was sounding the alarm on the fact that nurses are being ousted from the profession due to indiscriminate COVID-19 vaccine mandates in the workplace. And they are being replaced by travel nurses at sometimes three times the cost of their regular salary. Um, let me just see if I can pull pull that article up. But that was from a year and a half ago. We were reporting on this, that this was happening. And those nurses, those travel nurses are being paid by taxpayer dollars at three times the cost of a healthy, experienced, seasoned nurse who's been ousted from the profession because she made a personal medical choice contrary to the policy of the liberal government of the day that just kind of ricocheted and had the trickle-down effect into the provinces, into the municipalities, and into these businesses. You heard Justin Trudeau say in that clip that he doesn't want to see businesses penalized or face lawsuit for not instituting vaccine mandates. So they made it very lucrative and they condoned this. The Supreme Court, the Supreme Justice of Canada himself instituted a vaccine mandate in the Supreme Court of Canada. So what does that tell businesses? They It gives them the green light to go ahead that this is lawful, it's fair, and it's just. And if you don't do it, then your workplace is going to be unsafe and you'll be opened up to lawsuits if you don't institute a vaccine mandate. So it's all very back And now we're seeing the fallout of it, which will continue, I guess, unabated for the next decade. And um, there's really no solution, it seems here, that's being brought up by any of these politicians. Even Pierre Polyev, from what I see, has remained largely silent on this file. 
Right. And, you know, it's something that's happening across all government institutions and federal agencies. We're seeing the recruitment problems with the CAF right now, and it's exactly the same problem. Nobody wants to work for an authoritarian government agency that will all of a sudden throw you out the door despite your good work history and your skill set. They'll just get rid of you if you make a medical choice that they disagree with. And so uh, right now, I think the numbers are short 41,000 nurses across the country. um, And that's set to double um, by the end of the decade. And so not only is it the fact that they've driven out nurses, but they have a real recruitment issue now because um, women in the sciences are saying, you know what, (laughs) probably not for me. I don't think I need to go into nursing. I'd rather go someplace where I won't all of a sudden be treated like vermin uh, because the prime minister has used that as an election strategy. Um, and the only solution these people have is to throw money at the problem. And I saw some statistics on Twitter yesterday, but they were taken from um, the government of Canada, along with some other World Health Organization data. Uh, and it showed like the the per capita spending on healthcare uh, versus the number of actual healthcare workers in the system. So I think Canada is like a number three in the world in healthcare spending per capita per Canadian. Um, Alberta is substantially higher than the rest of the country for some reason. I mean, they have shorter wait times in Saskatchewan and shorter wait times in BC because they allow a mix of public and private. And so that sort of alleviates the wait time and drives the prices down. But um, it's like the third rail of things you can't touch here in Alberta. Um, But our access to doctors, like the number of doctors per capita, despite this like out of control healthcare spending, I think we're like number 26 in the world. Um, And so throwing more money at the problem is obviously not going to fix it. We have to allow innovation. But then you have the NDP and the liberals saying, oh, you know, like the the American style healthcare." And I'm like, I don't know, I would I wouldn't mind getting a knee replacement in 30 days. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like like, that seems nice instead of the two years um, that you have to wait in places like Alberta, rich province like Alberta, because everyone is scared to allow uh, healthcare innovation. I can wait, um, you know, several months for an MRI. Did I freeze up? I don't know. I can wait several months for an MRI or I can pay out of pocket tomorrow and get one and figure out what the heck is going on with my shoulder. Um, so, um, you know, throwing more money. My whole point is throwing more money at the problem of healthcare wait times and the lack of recruitment into healthcare, that's not going to work. We've already thrown a substantial amount of money at this and we still are not seeing it manifest in staffing numbers. Right. Yeah. And I think the socialized medical system is really just squashing any sort of innovation or competition that would take place in an otherwise more private model. And that's not to say that fully privatized healthcare is maybe the route to take, but if we were not taxed exorbitantly for these social services like healthcare, like public education, both of which are in complete failure, in my opinion, and depending on what province you're in, here in Ontario at least, the public education sector is a complete joke with diversity, equity, and inclusion policies taking precedence over actual tangible learning and having a robust curriculum in place and getting these kids caught up who faced 
the longest, most extended school closures of anywhere in the world, anywhere in the developed world at the very least. Um, but here, something I found interesting, just going back to this Blacklocks article, is that the committee was told almost 70% of health spending goes to salaries. As such, a lack of funding and cuts to funding translates to fewer jobs. Well, how much of that 70% of health sp spending that goes to salaries is up at those bloated bureau bureaucrats at the very top yeah. who are making, yeah. you know, 300 plus thousand dollars a year for what? I'm always shocked when I go to the uh, Ontario Sunshine list and you can see the salaries that some of these people are making. And I'm wondering where it's all going and why they need there's one um hospital services executive i i'd have to go back and check and look up his name i think it was in the durham region and he makes almost eight hundred thousand dollars a year to just be a hospital executive and yeah. meanwhile we have this shortage of frontline staff nurses and doctors and psws and everyone else who makes those wheels turn on the bottom and this person is probably working from home. Who knows has what kind of background if they actually worked in on the ground frontline position at one time in their life because many of them haven't. And he's netting almost $800,000 a year. This just doesn't make sense to me. And we hear it repeatedly time and time again that it's the bloated bureaucracy at the top and it's not translating down to the people on the bottom who are actually providing the care. And it's all these policies at the top that are hindering everybody down at the bottom trying to deliver that care. And so the vaccine mandates are key case in point in that situation where these bureaucrats up at the top think that it's a great idea. They're being incentivized by the province, who's incentivized by the feds. And now we have a healthcare crisis when it was arguably already on that trajectory and has now just been fully exacerbated. So well, I think and that just if on, on that point too, like not only is it the bloated salaries at the top, but all these other services that have no business being within the public sector that are provided to the hospital. So, for example, in Alberta, under the NDP, for some reason, uh, they wanted to renationalize the laundry service at the hospital because it had been previously contracted out because you don't need to make a government wage to run a washing machine. You don't need a pension to run a washing machine. It's not skilled labor. It's it's. As much as, you know, it it pains me to say it, it is unskilled labor. You should not be paid a government wage for that. You just shouldn't, right? Like it's not a $30 an hour job. It's like a $17 an hour job uh, without benefits. It's an entry level job. Everybody needs an entry level job to learn the skills to get to the other positions, right? Uh, but the government under the NDP thought, nope, we got to bring those back under government control. Why? I don't know. Because it's the NDP mandate to make sure that everything is under the purview of the government, I guess. Costs be damned. So they were willing to double the cost of laundry services just to make sure that it was under the purview of the government. Likewise, with our laboratory services, we have private labs all over the place in Alberta. It's very convenient. Your doctor like writes you a requisition for lab work, and then you just like go around the corner to the lab. It, you don't have to go to the government lab or the hospital or anything like that, uh, or a lab adjacent to the doctor's office. You can just go anywhere. Um, and it, it, it's been great. And a lot of it stems from the fact that you need constant drug testing in the oil patch. Um, and that's not an attack on the oil patch. It's a, a tip of my hat to their safety record. Um, but 
the NDP also wanted to renationalize all the lab services and then take all these lab techs and then make them government workers wherein we have to give them government benefits. And uh, so just unnecessary stuff like that, where there's a lot of things we could contract out to the private sector that would save money wherein you could invest in frontline workers, but uh, our governments are just too scared to do it all across the board. And or revoke vaccine mandates. <laughs> I keep yes, coming back also to that too. Because it also <laughs> drives people away from entering the profession too. Not only did you see people fleeing the profession as a result or being ousted, um, or there was also the great retirement or the great resignation where a lot of people saw the writing on the wall and they were like, we're out, sorry, we're not even going to deal with this at all. We're going to take early retirement or we're going to resign. So there's not a lot of stats on who was fired necessarily because a lot of them already left prior to that heavy-handed hammer of the government coming down on them. But um, there's also people who would love to become a nurse or become a doctor, but the existing mandates in place are acting as a massive deterrent for them to get into that field of work. And who's to say, as you already mentioned, Sheila, the next thing that's going to be mandated down the pike and they'll just get rid of you willy-nilly if you don't comply, that doesn't put a very strong taste in anyone's mouth who wants to pursue a career where they are in a position that they can uphold their bodily autonomy or their right to make their own informed medical choice. This is pretty devastating to an entire generation of children who may say, you know what, I don't want to give my body over to the state to decide just because I want to provide healthcare to people on the front lines. This is very backwards, and I think it's a very dangerous path, and we see that it's going to affect us for at least 10 years, according to the uh, the health committee that Black Locks reported on. So those of us, again, who saw this writing in the wall told you in 2020 that these lockdown measures were harming an entire group of people, an, an entire demographic, who wasn't at all at risk of severe outcomes from the COVID virus. And we have this Telegraph article yeah. to share here. The headline is, Lockdown Harmed the Emotional Development of Almost Half of Children. And this is according to a major study with more than 6,000 Uh, of more than 6,000 parents in England, just under half of parents said they believed their child's social and emotional skills had worsened during the first year of the pandemic, revealing that the impact of lockdowns has extended beyond lost academic progress. So as I already mentioned, for instance, in Ontario, we saw the longest and harshest lockdown, but also the longest and harshest school closure out of any other jurisdiction in any other developed nation across the world. I think it was 26 rolling weeks of school closures over a year and a half period. So this completely devastated these children academically. But as we can see now, because you have to wait for the real world data to come out in the studies, but many parents were saying back in April, May of 2020, that this was taking place. And you were essentially called a selfish grandma killer if you tried to advocate on the behalf of children. And these children were told that they better not speak up or feel this way because if they did, if they wanted to get together with their friends and their family and go visit their grandmother, then they would kill them. They were literally told that they were these super spreaders who would kill their grandparents if they went out to the grocery store without a mask on. These poor children were completely propagandized by our state media, by this government, and now we get to see the fallout of those measures 
as these children progress into adulthood. It's scary and it's really sad that it took three years to get a study out like this when you could have just listened to the anecdotal evidence presented by parents in the early spring, or sorry, the late spring of 2020. Can we uh, can we go back to what you just showed there, Olivia, with the eating disorders? I think this it's fascinating. Yeah. Around uh, nearly 12,000 people under the age of 18 began treatment on the NHS for eating disorders in 2022-2023. That's over double uh, from 5,240 in 2016-2017. So this is manifesting in ways that we can't even imagine. And this is all besides the academic and uh, other um, developmental skills delays. Like think about the impact on the littlest ones, the ones that are learning language skills. Yeah. You learn language skills by looking at how the other person is talking, like your eyeballs are your first interaction with the world. And they couldn't see how other people were speaking to make those words. And that's the littlest ones. Like I think about my little nieces and nephews, their first experience with school was with a mask. Like the youngest ones, like age three, they spent ages three to six in a mask everywhere they went yeah that will be their earliest memory that imprint on them their personality forever it's indelible you can't get rid of it is going to be in a masked world and i, I just i think that is terrible like the academic the um developmental delays but also this social stuff we are not going to see the full damage that society inflicted on young people i think for a generation to come and never before in human history by the way have we really ever done this and when we did do it we thought it was atrocious and evil we've never sacrificed the young for the old it's been a societal acknowledgement even amongst the old that i had a good run basically I had a good run. I had the opportunity to live my life. Now it's time for the healthy next generation or subsequent generations behind me to live their lives. You never sacrifice the young for the old. But that's what we did this time around. And I know a lot of grandparents were very objectionable to this. I would see it at protests all the time. They would say, do not lock down my grandchildren in my name. Do not cancel their sports in my name. I don't want it. And if it means that I die an early death, fine but they should be able to live that's that's why you know back when chivalry was a thing and women were something we knew what they were um we would say women and children first because you want to preserve the the weaker the smaller and the next generation but we don't do that anymore we did that as a society we threw them on the bonfire of covid to what to protect people who were already statistically speaking ready to die yeah this is as you mentioned this was an unprecedented measure and we had no idea what the fallout or the repercussions of it would be and yet we went forward with it for almost a full two years and there's the children in the formative years as you mentioned that are you know one to five ish who this was really 
impactful on, but you can see the teenagers as well with the eating disorders and the mental health crisis that's ensued, that they were really affected by it. I mean, I have my own anecdotal evidence. Um, my youngest at the time was just, had just turned two when the lockdowns were imposed. And so everything from swimming lessons, which is an actual safety hazard, right? Children should learn how to swim. Uh, swimming lessons, I think, are just now in the last few months, here in Ontario at least, starting to slowly come back. But these children didn't learn basic survival skills like swimming because of the because it was all COVID or nothing. Um, I had my youngest was born in 2021 during, I think it was the fifth lockdown. I mean, I couldn't even buy maternity clothes or clothes postpartum that fit me because of all the lockdowns and closures and I didn't know what size I was. And so, you know, when things started to open back up and get back to normal. I remember the first time we ate in a restaurant and my, um, my children had forgotten how to act. They had forgotten how to act in public. They had forgotten their mannerisms. They didn't know things like how to just follow a cart in the grocery store with me. They didn't know how to behave in public anymore because it had been stolen from them, those social interactions, for almost two full years. And the youngest ones didn't remember the pre-COVID times. And all along, my 82-year-old grandmother-in-law said, I just want to go to Tim Hortons and have a coffee with my friends and I want to go play cards and I want to go dancing with my friends and I don't want to sit in here in ho my house all alone. She would be stuck in front of her television all day. And it's funny because she saw through all the propaganda, she said, this news cycle seems more like propaganda than actual news to me. And it, she was all alone. She doesn't have access to social media. She doesn't have a cell phone. And so she could see through the propaganda. She has was overweight, had like four different comorbidities, was the highest person at risk. And I remember we visited her in April of 2020. And I said, you know, we can just visit outside if you'd feel more comfortable. And she said, absolutely not. You're coming in. I'm going to hug and kiss all of my great grandchildren and you'll stay for lunch too. And so that to me was really um, the, a key turning point where I said, you know what, even the people we're supposed to be protecting with these measures, they don't want this. And so we evaded restrictions almost entirely for the, for the duration of them, <laughs> visited with grandma who didn't get sick and die is still alive and well and um that's the way our cookie crumbled but yeah now we're seeing this on a more massive scale and it's really sad because i think in april of 2020 protesters on the lawn of queen's park in front of the ontario legislature were called a bunch of yahoos for raising these exact concerns by premier doug ford and so that was the kind of gaslighting that we saw for anybody who was a contrarian at that time they were called a bunch of yahoos selfish grandma killers and these poor children were basically instilled with the fear of God that they would kill their entire community and especially their grandparents if they dared want to visit with them. You know, and it, I'm sure you met with parents who you could, you could sense their desperation, right? Mm -hmm. Those parents who obviously knew the psychological impact of these lockdowns on my child could potentially be fatal. You know, like everybody knows a sensitive child. I have one of them. <laughs> yes. The other two are pretty uh, scrappy, tough, um, but I have one that is very sensitive. She will turn off the TV if people on the TV are yelling at each other. She just doesn't like it. She's got just a, a very soft heart. Um, I'm not sure where she gets it from. 
uh, but I wonder. She, I don't know. She's just, she's just got an. Uh, she's so uh, empathetic to other people, and I was worried about the impact of the lockdown isolations on her. So that's I was like, I'm just ha- not having none of it. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. <laughs> your friends come over, they're coming over. I, I don't care. We're just gonna live our lives. Um, but you would meet these parents at these protests, and you knew that they were protesting literally for the lives of their children. Yes. Um, and as it turns out, they were right. Uh, I just, I can't even, I dread the spate of uh, suicides in young people that we are going to see manifest going forward. There's, it's just inevitable. It's unavoidable. It's just going to happen and it, it's heartbreaking. And you could see it on the faces of those parents. I know we've spent a lot of time on this, but there's one other thing I just want to mention here because I was on the lawns of Queen Park, Queen's Park the day that Doug Ford called us a bunch of yahoos. And I met a woman there who was a dental hygienist at the time. I was not a rebel reporter yet. I just knew something didn't seem right. And I wanted to meet others and see what they were thinking because we couldn't really communicate. Everything was shut down. Um, those were the times of the really harsh lockdowns. Anyway, I met this dental hygienist and she told me, cause I was asking people, why are you here? What are you seeing? What's going on in your community? And she told me that she had been previously treating, I think he was about eight or nine, an autistic, severely autistic boy who had been coming into their office once a week for years. And he had to be sedated to undergo dental cleaning. His parents, he suffered from such a horrible sensory processing disorder that his parents couldn't even brush his teeth. So once a week, he would come in, be completely sedated. They would clean his teeth. And she said, it's been three weeks since I've seen this child. His mouth is going to be completely rotten, rotted out by the time I see this child again. She was crying. She was in tears just thinking about the state of this child's mouth and what it would be like by the time she could see him again, which none of us knew when that would be. And I think it was still months before dentists were able to open up again, right? Because they were like one of the key people with the droplets that you couldn't go in and get your I mean, but they can can treat you if you have, they can treat you if you have HIV, AIDS, hepatitis, (laughs) tuberculosis, all those things, but they couldn't treat you if you had COVID. And this woman's story would just broke my heart and I didn't even consider something like that. And when I heard her story and I saw her, the pain she was experiencing, just reminiscing on what this poor boy was probably going through, I thought, wow, this is a lot bigger and greater than just me wanting my kids to be able to socialize. Um, And that was a huge wake up call, just knowing that there were people out there with those kinds of disabilities that were really struggling and going to be very harmed permanently by these measures. And so that's why I continue to advocate and speak up and go to these rallies and these protests, because those are the kinds of people that you would meet there, not these yahoos, selfish grandma killers, as they were framed to be by our government and the media. Yeah, they were people trying to advocate for the most vulnerable amongst us and being told to shut up by the most powerful. Yeah, by the most powerful amongst us, by the way, and the most privileged, the people who could afford, like John Tory, to send his wife to Florida to live in the free state of Florida during the pandemic while he locked down his city. What a hypocrite. Also, I mean, it's convenient. You send your wife away to Florida uh, where she can get her hair done and live her life and go to the beach while you just run around with an underling. Mm -hmm. While you (laughs) look like an absolute lunatic. Um, Completely disheveled. 
<laughs> completely looked like a homeless ladies field hockey coach. Okay. Uh, we should, <laughs> we should uh, get to this last story. Uh, it's just been a whole show of COVID, but that's okay. Yes. It's just been the COVID moms complaining. Um, we should get to this last one and then get to the chats. And then um, I have a meeting right after, so we can't go long. All right. uh, big decision in Alberta and uh, surprising uh, because the courts have not been all that friendly when it comes to rendering judgments, um, when it comes to specifically the actions of the politicians during COVID. They will throw out tickets. Um, they will, um, you know, drop tickets, drop fines. Um, but they haven't really heard these broader cases like this. Either they're saying, I, we don't need to hear them because the crisis ha has subsided. So it's moot, as they say. Um, so they don't want to hear constitutional challenges or they just, um, the parties uh, will withdraw for whatever reason. But this is something else. The role of politicians in the pandemic restriction decision-making breached Alberta Public Health Act, says a Calgary judge. Orders ruled to be in breach because final say-so over public health should be given to elected officials. So Alberta's top elected officials made decisions about pandemic-related health measures, but the law required to be though required those things to be made by the province's then chief medical officer of health, Dina Hinshaw, a Calgary judge, has ruled. I think we got them on a technicality here because I really don't want unelected, unaccountable public health mm -hmm. officers to be governing over people. But as it turns out, that's what should have happened, which is horrific. Yeah. And the people who were elected and accountable were the ones making the decisions. So we had politicians making political decisions um, when these should have been health decisions. Um, and I'm not sure I want either one of them. Like, I don't want, I never wanted Dean Hinshaw telling me what to do with my life. Right. Um, but as it turns out, that should have been the person telling me what to do with my life, according to the legislation. Um, and she wasn't. She was advising the cabinet and the cabinet was making the restrictions. So uh, Judge Barbara Romaine's long anticipated 90 page decision filed Monday afternoon comes following a court action which began in December 2020 when a group of plaintiffs, including two churches and a gym owner, I think we might have helped that gym owner with fight the fines, if I recall correctly, um, argued pandemic-related health measures were contrary to Alberta's Bill of Rights and unlawfully breached Albertans' charter-protected rights. Romaine found that when it came to public health measures, the informed and well-qualified Hinshaw, okay, made recommendations and ultimately implemented the restrictions but it was cabinet and committee which had the final decision-making power although dr hinshaw was maligned during the pandemic and afterwards as a symbol of the restrictions she was not in fact the final decision maker romaine wrote that orders were made in fact outside the powers of alberta's public health act because they were made by politicians and not hinshaw Romaine ruled that even if proper decision-making framework was in place, Albertans' constitutional rights would not have been violated. Okay. Uh, while the Alberta government conceded that some of the restrictions infringed on Albertans' rights, Romaine found that others did not. Oh, this is your standard CBC article. Um, among those, okay. Among the litigants is anti-lockdown rodeo organizer and just all-around good, fun guy, Ty Northcott. His trial was paused pending the decision. Um, and there was another, 
another one. Uh, you think it's down a little bit more four days before Christmas 2020? That part? Uh, no, there's another one. I can't remember who the, I'm just looking for the other litigants in the group. It seems weird that they're in this article from the CBC, they haven't listed um, the other, the applicants in the case, two churches and mm. um, and uh, the the gym owner, which I believe was a single mom gym owner of five children. And uh, they decided that they should lock her down, even though she tried her best. And her business was destroyed. I can't remember. Anyways, it does it, it does matter? Um, but um, I'll see if I can dig that up. But I, I mean, I'm happy that the government is in trouble and that they apparently got this wrong and they didn't follow the law when they were like locking people down and ticketing people for not following their law. But at the end of the day, I really hate the idea of Dr. Dina Hinshaw being in charge of yes. Uh, of locking people down and closing their businesses. She was unelected, unaccountable. And, um, you know, she, she was just a five o'clock necromancer. That's what she did every day. They'd have their press conference. She denounced the deaths, tell you all that she was very sorry about the deaths and then impose new restrictions on you um, every single day, scaring people left, right and center with her daily press conferences. So well, and remember uh, that I'm not time sure too, how I feel about this. Right before they were trying to ramp up the fear for the adolescents who had just recently, or they were moving forward with the COVID nineteen vaccine authorization in that age mm -hmm. group, and Dina Hinshaw lied about um, a termini terminally ill teenager, right? Who I think he had brain cancer. Yes. And he unfortunately yep. succumbed to his cancer. And she used that to stoke fear in parents that these children were at risk of COVID by stating incorrectly that he had died of COVID-19. Um, and then it took his family coming out in their sorrow, grief, and, and time of tragedy and distress to come out and denounce her claims for her to come forward and say, yeah, here we have the National Post article where she apologizes and says Alberta teen didn't actually die from COVID. But that's not until after the damage was already done. And that was during a time that they were trying to ramp up the fear uh, to uh, justify the authorization of these novel injections and ensure that more people, especially these young, healthy teenagers, complied with the enforcement of vaccine passports and vaccine mandates. It's absolutely disgusting what these medical officers of health did, especially as appointed, unelected bureaucrats who disavowed previously well-established pandemic response plans. This was never in the playbook. We have the evidence to go off of. We have flu and preparedness and respiratory illness preparedness. And all of that was completely just disregarded for these, this knee-jerk hysteria. And um, so to see Dina Hinshaw here in the hot seat again is kind of, kind of fun to watch. We have a tweet also from Eva Chipiak who did a nice little dissection of this um, this unfolding. She says to those, uh, well, she calls it a major victory. And then a few tweets down, she said, to those saying this decision is not actually a victory, 
One, the court recognized it was enacted without proper legal authority, so victory. Two, people are recognizing other problems in our establishment that need to be addressed. Ensuring that government actually works for the public requires informed, organized, and active participation. And this is down um, further in the, her thread. I think it's one of the last tweets. Um, it's on you to be an active citizen, not a hero, to swoop in ma and magically fix everything. The work of holding the government to account has just started, unfortunately. Question is, what are you doing to hold the government to account? And so I like that she really ended on that question because it is, we do still live in a democracy and not some strange, bizarro world banana republic, um, then yeah, you have to be an active citizen and you have to actively participate and, and hold the government to account. So that I think is one of the main mandates of Rebel News. We speak truth to power. We point out hypocrisy of the bureaucracy and try to hold this government to, to account. Uh, we don't see that anymore from the mainstream media because they're just government lapdogs at this point and they're spokespeople for the consensus instead of actually thinking critically and asking critical questions. Um, so it's nice to see that there's, there's lawyers out there who are finally taking the steps. And I think we had to get out of the weeds of the hysteria in order to see the light yeah. at the end of this tunnel. So that's that I think is starting now. But um, I appreciate Ava's tweet asking, what are you doing as a citizen to hold the government to yeah. account? Yeah. So if I understand correctly, uh, the two churches involved would be uh, um, Grace Life, a Fairview Baptist, of course, Ty Northcott of illegal rodeo fame, who is like a rodeo legend, by the way. And then all of a sudden he's tweeted like a fringe radical because he's like, I'm pretty sure that these guys get on bulls for a living. Um, what they may or may not wear a helmet. Mostly they don't. Um, and you're telling them to be scared of the flu. Nah, I don't think so. And then uh, Rebecca Ingram, uh, if yes. I, if this is the right person, Rebecca Ingram is the gym owner, um, with five kids who is ticketed a thousand dollars and she was, they call this the Ingram ruling. Um, and so, um, so, you know, she took this all the way to the bitter end, um, at 26 years as a, as, um, gym owner, um, five kids to support and her business and uh, basically her ability to feed her children was stripped from her mm -hmm. by um, unelected health bureaucrats and uh, politicians who just couldn't follow the rules. Um, Which is I, I think, fun, yeah. sad, but funny enough. Um, another thing that that lockdown harmed the emotional development of almost half children mentioned that children really felt the desperation of their parents when they face these economic sanctions by the government and these public health overlords. And this also negatively affected the development of children who feared things like where their next meal is going to come from yep. and their parents losing their business and maybe losing the roof over their heads. So this wasn't just affecting that woman as a mother. This was also affecting and trickling down to all of her children. Um, and who knows what the repercussions of that will be. We're, we're seeing them unfold in real time. Um, if if you've watched Ungovernable, and I think you have because you're wearing the shirt, um, I talk about that in the documentary 
Um, yes. By the way, if you want Jamara's ungovernable shirt, it's available at rebelnewsstore.com. It's literally one of my favorites. It's one of the best sellers because it's one of my wh- whether or not whether or not you've watched the documentary, I think uh, people who watch Rebel News are generally ungovernable. Um, <laughs> and use code Tamara ten at uh, checkout. Save ten percent off your order. <laughs> but I talk I talk about that in the documentary. One of my earliest <clears throat> memories is my parents sitting at the kitchen table, just absolutely stressed about the economic fallout as it hit our family uh, in the wake of the National Energy Program. And so uh, that has led to my deep dislike of government control over the oil and gas sector and uh, Trudeau's in general uh, for my entire life. And so I know what one of those moments in time where you see the fear and concern of your parents who who you think can solve every problem in the world, and then all of a sudden you realize that they can't, um, it, it sticks with you forever. It just imprints on your personality forever. And that was just a one of for me. So I can't even imagine what it was like for kids who are just constantly worried about, you know, like how, how are, how are my parents going to pay the bills or yeah, pay for my braces or all those things? Like, it's just, it's just awful. So we have a painter here to check out the studio and do a once over. So <laughs> we're going to wrap this up Let's by reading through these uh, super chats. Maybe I'll take the first one, Sheila, and yep. um, and then you can maybe take over thereafter. But we have Enmark who gives $5. I was wondering if there's any news with Pastor Arter and Rebel News. Has there been any changes in the relationship? I think, Sheila, you're probably better to answer this one than I am. I think you're probably more familiar. Yeah, no, um, we we think of Pastor Art as uh, a friend. We admire his resistance to COVID lockdowns. Um, he's still being represented by uh, the arm's length charity, the Democracy Fund, in his appeal of his conviction um, at uh, Coots um, in a Lethbridge court. So um, uh, I'm, I'm not sure what you're asking there, um, but no, uh, Pastor Art. Uh, in fact, Sid Fizard has an interview with um, Pastor Art coming out uh, sometime this week or in the next coming days uh, discussing um what it was like to be incarcerated uh, at Lethbridge for so so long and he just did 50 days so um anyway I hope that answers your question well and he was a key uh part of your documentary as well yep. and um so if you haven't watched that you can do so at um yep. the yeah, and- I forget the URL already a church under fire movie.com yeah, there it is or Thanks. save the christians.com and you know what uh, as with everybody we cover, we don't have to agree with everybody's particularly particular take on everything. I think I don't even agree with some of the particular takes of our staff sometimes. But but that's what comes with working in the rebel universe is that we are all free thinkers with our own opinions and our own particular worldview. And I enjoy that because if I wanted homogeneity, I'd be a liberal. Exactly. Uh, Funis gives us five bucks. The unvaccinated are not a threat to society. They are a threat to authority. Yes. Put that on a shirt. (laughs) Yeah, actually we should. There you go. New rebel, new store shirt. Yep. 
Do you want to take the next one? Yeah, sure. Jada Bursi gives $5. And thank you, everyone, for your donations. I feel like puking every time I listen to this, whatever you want to call him. I'm assuming that's in reference to our Justin Trudeau clips. Uh, we're not as stupid as he thinks we are. I don't believe he was vaccinated at all. Well, there's a conspiracy theory if I ever heard one. Yeah, who knows? Or if it was some sort of saline injection. Um, sometimes it's funny. You would see the TV doctors taking their shots, but like there would be no needle or it wouldn't really go in or it was all just kind of for show. Um, so I, I don't know. I wouldn't put it past them. But uh, if he shows up with some more Band-Aids on his face, then maybe he's he's having some sort of adverse reaction, adverse <laughs> event. You know what? We'll see. I think based on the sheer number of times Trudeau came down with COVID, I would suggest that he's, he's probably, probably, vac- yeah. probably fully vaccinated. Um, AMT60, in 2021, an EU nurse whistleblower said that there were three types of shots. One placebo, which the elites and politicians get. None of our Canadian politicians have died suddenly or got myocarditis, etc. That we know Again, of. Again, that we know of. Um, uh, we're not going to find out about their private medical history, like maybe some of them are suffering myocarditis. I don't know. Um, but again, just the number of times Trudeau has come down with COVID leads me to believe that he's fully, 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 fully extra triple boosted vaccinated. Yeah. And AMT gave a follow-up and we did address this, uh, I think two weeks ago when you first brought it up. So thanks for bringing it to our attention. But um, AMT was the one that twice sent rebel rants about the $5 rant thing being US $7 or sorry, being in US and costing $7 Canadian. Uh, AMT is on uh, is retired and on a fixed pension and they hope that we read their $3 rant. So we did. Thank you for that. Thank you for your continued support. Even if it's just a little bit, every little bit helps. And um, I think that concludes that. So we're about 10 minutes past the hour. There's a painter here. So I'm- And I'm uh, late for a meeting. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. Thanks for everybody at home who joined us. And uh, we'll see you here same time and place tomorrow, just with maybe two different rebels. Thanks to everybody behind the scenes who made this possible, whether it be through the write-ups, the graphics, super producers, making sure everything flows well. And thanks, Sheila, for joining me. And um, we'll see you here again tomorrow. Jen, I wanted to ask about uh, to um, to the... The federal government. She wants a reception center funded by your government, your Pearson, so asylum seekers can check in and the city can be aware of, of where they're going and what their needs are. And she's also asking for more money. I mean, you saw the images of people sleeping on the street once they arrived in Canada. What, are, what is your response to the reception center and what was your reaction when you saw what was happening on the, on the streets of Toronto? I just had a great meeting with uh, Mayor Chow just a, a few days ago, and we're going to continue to work together in uh, constructive ways. It is unacceptable in a country like Canada uh, that vulnerable refugees be having to sleep in the streets or uh, vulnerable asylum claimants uh, have to be sleeping in the streets. Uh, but the solution on that requires all of us to step up together. Yes, the federal government will be there, uh, but when it comes uh, to settling asylum seekers, Again, municipalities and provinces have uh, the large part of responsibility on that. Yes, the federal government is part of the mix on that, and we will be there as we have with an announcement of uh, uh, $212 million across the country with almost $100 million directly for the city of Toronto. We will be there 
to work and to uh, hear proposals for creative solutions that can help solve this. And I know uh, that uh, Minister Miller uh, is very, very excited to be able uh, to move forward on solutions to continue to work uh, uh, the great work done by uh, the, his predecessor, uh, Sean Fraser. How in the world could such a small group of people with limited resources change world history? But in fact, that's happening. And it's the power of the truth. The truth is like kryptonite. Healthcare isn't in some sense working very well. Foster Colson is thinking about this. He's got a new company, an online healthcare platform called The Wellness Company. Telehealth company called The Wellness Company. The Wellness Company. The most popular product is the detoxification supplement that features natokinase. Natokinase is the only only enzyme that we're aware of right now that dissolves the spike protein. Spike protein is loaded in the body with the COVID-19 infection and definitely with the vaccines. We've been completely accurate on the spread of the virus, early treatment, on the deficiencies in hospital care, and now the deaths that are occurring after vaccination. This is a human outrage and it's occurring at the end of a hypodermic needle. Isn't it interesting? Natural substances combating this man-made disaster.